Man, I am so honored to be here. My name is Smith Hopkins. I'm the lead planter at Oikos Church over by the University of Memphis. I want to share one of our, our secret weapons that we've discovered in a couple of years of church planting. One of the most powerful tools for ministry that we have. It's actually one of our core missional habits as a church, and I want to commend it to you. Are you ready for the secret weapon? For the sophisticated nature? You want to write this down. Are you ready? Ask deeper questions. That's it. That's it. I want to talk about that for a little bit, but really it's that simple. If you could just make time to ask deeper questions, you're going to see ministry fruit. Most of the ministry fruit that we're seeing is connected to spaces, environments, and conversations where somebody is listening. What if I told you science proved it? A couple of years ago, there was this New York Times essayist named Mandy, and she discovered this research from psychologists that said there's these powerful tools called questions that can make you feel connections and love. And she thought, well, I'm single, maybe that's what I need. So she did a little mini experiment of her own. She took the 36 questions that lead to love from the psychologist's research and she put them in a first date environment. She met a guy at a bar, they, instead of like small talk, they worked through the 36 questions that lead to love. And at the end of the night, they did the four minutes that the researchers recommend of staring into one another's eyes. That's a long time. So what she learned, she says, I used to think of love as basically something that happened to us. We fall, we get crushed. She says, but this research assumed that love is an action. And so as a result of her night, she's begun to think of love as a more pliable thing. She says, it's simple even to generate feelings of intimacy and trust. And I think when you get feelings of intimacy and trust, the fruit is love. She says, at the end of the night, you're probably wondering, well, did we fall in love? She says, yes, we did. And now there's an app for that. You can download it. <laughs> but you're, you're like, we're not here for romantic love. Sure, sure. Kingdom love has got to be something different. But if you look at the original research by Arthur Aaron, it's actually not about romantic love at all. It's just about felt closeness. There were two college students they would partner two college students together to ask these questions in a, just a university classroom environment for 45 minutes. And at the end of the class, they would go home and they would feel very connected to this person. But incredibly, 30% of the students, nearly one in three, they rated that, that relationship of less than an hour as, quote, closer than the closest relationship in their lives. Somebody got a new best friend. But do you hear that drought of listening that they're coming from? You see, questions, asking deeper questions and then active listening are the soil that intimacy and trust need to grow and then where there's intimacy and trust, there can be love. But the reason I'm commending asking deeper questions to you isn't, isn't because of really cool research from years ago. It's because this is the way of Jesus. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Dallas Willard. He's a kind of a discipleship guru. And he says, if you want to become like Jesus, you just got to do one thing. You have to take on the overall style of life that Jesus took on for himself. What's the overall style? If you want to become like Jesus, you need to take on the style of life of asking deeper questions. 
let me defend this a bit. It's, it's really because Jesus asked hundreds of questions. If you just read the Gospels, one scholar did this, Martin Copenhaver. He wrote a book called Jesus is the Question, and he counts 307 questions that Jesus asked other people. That's a lot of questions. He's constantly asking questions. One of the funniest questions to me is in John 21, verse 5, where he says, hey, friends, have you caught any fish? And the reason this is funny is because Jesus knows they haven't caught any fish, and he sounds so friendly while he's asking them. You can just hear their grumpy voice be like, no. (laughs) And it's funny to me because he already has fish. He doesn't even need it. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing here? The first time we hear Jesus' voice, it's a question. You remember Luke 2, he's been missing. He's back in the temple and he's surrounding the scholars. And remember what he's doing. He's listening and asking questions. His mom shows up, where have you been? And he asked her two questions in response to it, of course. Remember his last words in the Gospel of Mark? My God, my God, why? After his resurrection, he's asking questions. What were you talking about as we walked along? Have you any fish here to eat? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? All through the ministry of Jesus, if you can just think of like your, your favorite Jesus story, there's probably a question that he's asking somebody in it. Jesus' discipleship strategy depends on his question asking. He'll say, show me your faith. What do you want? What's your name? Do you see her? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of life? Which of these three was a neighbor? Who do you say that I am? He's constantly asking questions. So I, I want to just explore, where did he get this? And then how can we do it? Let's start there with the, where did he get? It seems to be in his DNA that he's just a question asker. And I think he probably came by it honestly. Because if you, if you look at Jesus, he's a, he's a Jewish man. He comes from the people of Israel. And in Israel's story, there's a culture of questions where the great people in Israel's story are question askers. If you just look at Abraham, Genesis 18, he's before Sodom, and he's asking God questions. God, will you wipe out the city if? He's just negotiating with God. Moses, God, why? Jeremiah, why do you let the wicked prosper? There's whole books of the Old Testament, like Habakkuk. If you haven't read it in a while, it starts out with some heavy hitters on asking God hard questions. The book of Job gets a little tedious because there's just hundreds of questions that they're asking. To be, to be a person of faith isn't to be without questions. In fact, people without questions, it's not a sign of your depth in Israel's story. It's a, it's a sign of your lack of depth. So there's this culture in Israel's law. You probably know this. There's 613 laws. But did you know that they don't have a single word for obey? The word is listen or hear. It's there in Deuteronomy chapter six. This is the Shema. They pray this three times a day. Jesus would have prayed this all his life. Hear, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, you know the greatest command is love. But have you noticed that listen is also part of it? Hear. This theological culture of asking God questions. It's just, his heroes were question askers. 
But it seems that he's supposed to pass it down. If you just keep reading Deuteronomy 6 to go to the verse 20, it says that when your son asks you, it's all about how to pass on faith to the next generation, how to have a culture, not just in their kind of church life or temple life, but in your home life. And they're supposed to pass on their laws and their stories, not, not just hand them down, but to hand them down in response to questions. When you're supposed to tell the story of Passover, the littlest among us is going to raise up and ask the questions. We teach them to ask questions. I would love for Highland Church, along with Oikos Church, and for our families, our homes, our tables, to be places where there was a culture of questions. Where they could look up to mom and dad and say, my heroes ask hard questions. And my heroes listen to me culture of questions, but there are, seem to be unhealthy ways of doing a culture of questions. You've probably experienced some of those. Jesus certainly did. So the second movement here is not just a culture of questions that he comes from, but how Jesus stands out in contrast to his culture. You see, Jesus is asking hundreds of questions, but one scholar says he's also asked 183 questions. That's a lot. And when religious leaders ask Jesus questions, there's this word that keeps showing up. Any Star Wars nerds out there? What does Admiral Akbar say? It's a trap. trap. Yeah. Look at John 8. John, put, put that one up on the screen. This woman who's caught in adultery, they bring her to Jesus and they say, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? And look, they were using this question as a what? As a trap. They're investigating They're they're laying plans to catch him in something. Matthew 22, they're talking about taxes and politics. And it says this, that the Pharisees laid plans to trap him in his words when they asked him, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knows that some questions are unsafe. Some people are unsafe. When they're asking questions, get out. It's a trap. How does Jesus get out of trap questions? He seems to ask questions. <laughs> like The baptism of John, did it come from heaven or did it come from men? He's like, I'm not going to answer you either. He, he gets, why are you trapping me, he says in Mark 12. He's just getting out of the traps. But when Jesus asks questions, he's not investigating in the same way. Now, this is fascinating. Just think about this. Every question Jesus ever asked, he knew the answer before they did. Right, Mark says that he knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their heart. He knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their heart. So every question he's asking, he's not in it for the information. He's in it for something else. It seems to be he's in it for the transformation. There's three marks of the questions of Jesus that I want to share with you, I think, that are, that are commendable. The first mark is that when Jesus asks a question, it's a gift. It's a gracious gift of dignity. Look at this, a gracious question helps people to see that they are seen. There's a woman known locally as a sinner. She comes into the house, she starts washing Jesus' feet and the people are appalled, you're letting her do that? And he says, do you see this woman? His questions are a way of dignifying somebody who feels unseen. My wife, Kelsey, and I get to experience this a lot. There's people who feel unseen. They feel invisible. Recently, there were some nomadic people who have kind of been moving and traveling, and they came into our home. 
They're looking for a people. And we just spent the night kind of listening to their story and asking questions. At the end of the night, she said, I just feel so seen. It's dignity. Jesus' questions also tap into desire. Desire. A gracious question helps people see our hearts are restless. Jesus' questions have a way of getting under the surface about what you're really looking for. James and John, with their mom, they come up to Jesus and say, can we sit on your right and your left hand? He says, what do you want me to do for you? There's a blind beggar. What do you want? There's an invalid who can't move, a paralytic. And he, he says, do you want to be made well? He wants to know what they really want because sometimes the thing you found is far better than the thing you're looking for. His questions get under the surface into longing and desire. But he doesn't leave them there. The third piece of Jesus' questions is that his questions, they explore direction. John 1, there's a couple of guys that he sees. He gives them dignity. He sees them over by the tree. And then he asks them, what do you want? And they want, they want life. And Jesus says, come and see. Follow me. Asking deeper questions, the whole point, the whole point of asking questions is deeper discipleship. He's not just leaving people in their longings, he's showing the direction to go, come with me. So a gracious question helps people see that which is truly life. That's beautiful. But can we dive into one of my favorite questions? This is John 21. This is the one we started with. But really, this is just the setup for the the really hard hitter. It's a challenging question that Jesus gives him. John 21, five, he says, friends, have you caught any fish? And he knows they haven't caught any fish. And they say, no, we haven't caught any fish. But let's pause and just ask, why are they fishing to begin with? These are guys that he said, leave your nets and come and follow me. And they're picking up their nets and going back after it. And they're not even good at it, right? They've they've been fishing all night. Jesus calls out from the shore and says, try it on the other side of the boat. And they're like, oh, I didn't think of that, thanks. And they cast it on the other side. And they catch 153 fish and immediately the disciples know what's going on. So Peter tears off his cloak and he dives into the water and he swims to the shore. And as he's coming up on the beach, Look at what he finds there. It says that there was this fire of burning coals. A charcoal fire was waiting for him. Now, I I love a good fire. If you're ever over by Harding Academy and you see smoke, don't worry, it's just my house. We're always burning in the backyard something. That's not the reason why this stands out to me. It's not just so good to have like charcoal fire. This is a type scene in the Gospel of John. We've seen this before. It's a couple of chapters earlier. It was actually the night that Jesus was betrayed. Remember, Jesus goes captive to be interrogated by the highest officials in the land. He's being struck and accused of blasphemy. And meanwhile, outside, Peter is being interrogated by the lowest official in the land, a little servant girl. And as he's there, she asks him, did you know this guy? And three times, Jesus is inside silent as a lamb led to its slaughter and outside Peter is not. Three times he denies Jesus and then he curses Jesus. 
And the text throws in this little detail that he was warming himself by a fire of burning coals. He swims up on the shore. And that's what he sees. And it's like, oh. You know he can remember. Can you imagine that shame-filled, guilt-ridden Peter leading? Peter can't either. Peter can't even imagine following. This is Peter. He ran to the empty tomb and saw it. This is Peter. He met the risen Jesus and saw the wounds in his hands. And he still went back fishing. And there at the fire, Jesus takes him for a walk and he asks him this challenging question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? The third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's just wailing, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And as he's asking this question, look at what it says in the detail. Peter was hurt. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend. He's a sports chaplain for a university. And he said, a good question is the scalpel of ministry. It's where the surgeon gets in close to the wound. Peter was hurt, but clearly he was hurt before this. Now he's hiding. Isn't this what we do? We hide from our hurt, but by hiding, we actually end up hiding from the healing that we could experience. But the scalpel of a question tenderly gets in close. Jesus draws near and shows that he sees and he cares. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my sheep, Peter. And with a question, the world changes. This guy, who was on the boat in an unproductive, shame-filled life, is turned in a moment through the power of a question. It's incredible. This is the guy who ushers in the church of Christ Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in just a couple of days. This is him, and it all turns because of questions. So how do we use the scalpel of ministry? How do we use the secret weapon? How do we use this missional habit of asking deeper questions? In Paul's letter of Colossians, he says, let your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to give an answer. What would gracious conversation that's seasoned with salt look like today? I think more than answers, it looks like questions. In a culture where no one is listening and there's so much noise, one of the most gracious gifts you can give to someone is to just slow down and ask deeper questions. There's a 100-year-old book, you know, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He's got a chapter on how to be a good conversationalist. He tells a story. He was at a dinner party and he met this guy who was a botanist. And you're like, I don't even know what that is. It's just a plant guy. He loved plants, so he was intrigued and he asked him questions and he talked about plants through the night. And at the end of the night, the botanist went up to the host of the party and he said, man, that Carnegie was an interesting conversationalist. And Carnegie, when he heard this, he was a little shocked. He's like, interesting conversationalist. Why, I had better, barely said anything at all. But I had done this. I had listened intently. 
I had to listen because I was genuinely interested and he felt it. Naturally, that pleased him. That kind of listening is one of the highest compliments we can pay anyone. I had him thinking of me as a good conversationalist when in reality, I had been merely a good listener. My brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Evangelism scholars today in the 21st century, they say the best, most effective way to do evangelism They call it the golden rule of evangelism. Sam Chan wrote this book with a clever title, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. And he says, you just have to practice the golden rule, which is evangelizing the way you would want to be evangelized. He says, the number one thing is to listen first. In one of his training videos, he just says, shut up and listen. (laughs) Let them tell their story first. Another scholar, he says that when you listen, it plows the ground for gospel conversation. So you can be the talk of the dinner party. You can be the one who's evangelizing the the stranger. But I think most of us are just like on a soul level wanting this in our homes and our tables and our kids and our parents and our, our friends and our roommates. We're like, I just want deeper connection. And guess what? Asking deeper questions is the key there too. What would this look like in your home, in your Bible class here, in your row today? It looks like making room Gracious conversation just looks like making room. Making room means literally making space. In Arthur Aaron's research, he's not everybody connected, obviously. But one of the the key markers, one of the top markers for why people couldn't connect is that they were preoccupied. Do you know the number one mealtime frustration that Americans have? Phones at the table. Yeah, you knew that, didn't you? (laughs) Even if you didn't know that, you knew that. And so can you make spaces, literal spaces in your home where this is just tech-free? No phones at the table. No phones at the fire pit. Or maybe no phones at the bedroom. No phones at the island. Just make space where I'm just here to linger and listen. The second piece of make room is not just make space, but it's to make time. Maybe it's when your kids come home from school and you get that after-school snack and you can just ask a few deeper questions about their day. Maybe it's dinner and you do highs and lows. Maybe it's a weekly date night with your significant other. Maybe it's a, a phone call with your, your old roommate. There's so many ways to ask deeper questions, but asking deeper questions is what, it's the glue that holds intimacy and trust together. Make some time. At our church, ask deeper questions is one of our rhythm of life habits. We ask everybody to just set up daily rhythms and weekly rhythms of asking questions. Make space, make time, but perhaps the most important thing here is just make room in your heart to hold the dignity of other people, to hold the longings of other people, and then to hold the direction of other people. And you know this, that if you could show the person who feels invisible that they were seen. Maybe it's the person you love the most that you don't even know what they're really wanting right now, where you could just listen and long. What could it do if your kids knew without a doubt, not only that my heroes ask questions, but my heroes listen to me? Isn't that what you want? 
What if that was your siblings or your parents or your roommates or your neighbor or your friend where you just get this reputation for being someone who shows their love by listening? Don't you think that would resonate? Don't you think your heart would be filled with a depth of new relationship? And don't you think the gospel could take root in that to bear the fruit of love? I commend gracious listening and asking deeper questions to you. May, may God bless your, your listening. Could, could we pray together as we close? No God who hears us every time we call. Would you give us your power to listen? Would you shape us into the image of Jesus, the one who asked so many questions, who carried people's hearts with him? Would you form in our homes and in this church a culture of questions? Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever world without end. Amen. God bless you guys.